Amen. On May the 20th, uh, 2000, 40,000 college students spread out on the damp, grassy fields of Shelby Farms in Memphis, Tennessee. 40,000 college students. They, they weren't there for a rock concert or a sporting event. They were there to hear a preacher. And what they heard that day changed many of them forever. Pastor John Piper began his sermon at the one-day Passion Conference with a story. He said this, about three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over the cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, John Piper said, I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick and the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw away their lives on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? He asked. And then he said, it is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. And then he grabbed a little article from Reader's Digest, and he said, this is a tragedy. The title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early. And then he quoted, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. And then Pastor John Piper looked at the crowd of 40,000 people, and he said, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. Don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream, he said. A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. L look, Lord, my shell collection. And then he said to that crowd of 40,000 strong, don't waste your life. Don't waste it. If John Piper was preaching to the exiles in the days of the prophet Haggai. He might have used a different illustration. He might have imagined God's people standing before the creator of the universe, not with seashells, but with 
nice paneling from their houses. Here it is, Lord, my nice paneling. Look at my paneling, Lord. I want you to understand, brother, sister, friend, gathering in the room, watching online, in every single generation, in every single era of human history, there is a temptation to waste your life by investing in things that don't matter. The question I want us to ask this morning, I want every single person listening to ask yourself this question this morning. Am I wasting my life? If you're not already there, turn to the book of Haggai. It's been about 100 years since Habakkuk and Zephaniah prophesied to the southern kingdom in Judah. If you were here the past two weeks, through Habakkuk, through Zephaniah, God promised judgment was coming through Babylon. Judgment came. Just as God promised in 586 BC, the Babylonian army swept in, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, the temple, Solomon's masterpiece in all of its glory, destroyed. If you were with, with us over a year ago, we walked through the book of Lamentations, which was written in the aftermath of what happened in 586 BC. Babylon comes in and they destroy just as God promised. <clears throat> Many Jews were taken captive. They were brought into Babylon. So if you remember the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, these men and many others were taken into Babylon as exiles during this period of time. But then in 539 BC, something else happens. The Babylonians now are defeated. And now a new power, a new world power has arisen. This time it's the Persian army led by King Cyrus. Now, if you were to visit the, the British Museum in London, you could see an artifact called the Cyrus Cylinder. And in that cylinder, King Cyrus, a real figure from history, he, he writes about how he returned deported people that the Babylonians had exiled, he returned them back to their homes and restored their temples of worship. The book of Ezra in the Old Testament tells the story about how Cyrus sent the exiles back to Jerusalem, back to Judah, and they began rebuilding the temple. But by the time Haggai is written, 19 years have passed since Cyrus conquered Babylon. Cyrus has died. King Darius the Great is now ruling the empire of Persia. And even though God, uh, God has, has used King Cyrus to give God's people the freedom to rebuild the temple of God, the, the work has stalled. The temple is not being rebuilt. And much like an elderly John Piper preaching to a crowd of young people in Memphis, Tennessee, an elderly prophet named Haggai shows up, preaches to a crowd of exiles in Jerusalem, and like Piper, this old prophet pleaded with God's people not to waste their lives. The book of Haggai is uh, it's a collection of five prophecies, five messages given by Haggai the prophet from August the 29th, 520 BC to December 18th of that same year. And in those five questions, or, or those five messages, I want us to ask ourselves three questions. Three simple questions I want you to ask yourself this morning. And as you answer those three simple questions, 
I hope you will be able to answer that big question, am I wasting my life? Now, just a quick word of warning for the clock watchers in the room. We're gonna spend the most of our time on the first question. So when we're still there and you're looking at your clock and you're wondering when lunchtime is, I told you if you were listening, okay? First, most of the time on our first question. Here it is. Am I focused on the mission of God? I want you to ask yourself that question this morning, right now. Brother, sister, friend, are you focused? Where's your focus? Not as it's one of the things you, you do, your focus, the center of your focus, your heartbeat. Is it on the mission of God? The story is told that Albert Einstein was once on a train bound for New York City. And as the ticket taker came into the train, where the train car where Albert Einstein was seated, he asked Einstein for his ticket. And Mr. Einstein began frantically searching his pockets, turned them all inside out, began looking through all of his luggage. He could not find his ticket. And the ticket taker smiled at Mr. Einstein and he said, sir, it's okay. We know who you are. It's fine if you don't give us your ticket. And Albert Einstein looked back at the man with a steely stare and he said, young man, I know who I am, but I don't know where I'm going. I think perhaps that the Jewish people may have been in 520 BC when Haggai's written, they're in the same predicament. They know who they are, but they have forgotten where they're going. They had forgotten their mission. And so on August the 29th, 520 BC, Haggai gives his first message. We've already heard it, but let's look at it again. Let's start in verse two of chapter one. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I want you to notice in those first few verses, God's people are, are very busy. When I ask you this morning, if you're focused on the mission of God, I'm not asking you if you're busy. You can be busy doing all the wrong things. Notice the activity. They're, they're sowing, they're eating, they're drinking, they're clothing, they're earning, but they're not satisfied. Nothing is adding up to anything of value, anything that matters. Busyness, dear friend, is not the path to lasting happiness. Not if you're busy collecting seashells. Not if you're busy filling up a bag that's filled with holes. Busyness is not the answer, dear friend. Have you ever wondered why all the things that you're working for in this life never seem to satisfy? Have you ever wondered why after a hard week filled with labor, at the end of it, you sometimes ask yourself, I don't feel any happier or more satisfied than I did when the week began. That's what's happening for the people the exiles in Jerusalem. 
They're busy paneling their houses, earning money, doing things, but they're not satisfied. And Haggai says, it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. What are they supposed to be doing? Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin while each of you busies himself with his own house. Here's the takeaway right here, brother, sister, friend. You will waste your life if you do not align it with the mission of God. You will waste your life if you do not align it with the mission of God. You might be wondering, well, what does this mean for me? I mean, practically, what does this mean? Are we supposed to rebuild the temple? Is that what God wants us to do? Is this a book of the Bible that we use when the church is in the middle of a rebuilding program? Gather your wood and supplies and rebuild my house. Is that what we're talking about? I think if we're going to understand how to apply the book of Haggai to 21st century Christians today, we need to zoom out and get a big picture view of the whole Bible story about the temple. So if you were to ask any self-respecting Jew in Jesus's day or in any of the time of the scriptures, if you were to ask them, what is the most important place in the world? What would they say? They would say the temple in Jerusalem, without question, without hesitation, the most important place on earth is the temple. Why? Because it was in the temple where, where God met his people. Heaven and earth met in the temple. It was the place where God dwelled with man. If you remember back where the Bible story begins, there was no need for a temple, right? Adam and Eve walked with God. Were, the, the Garden of Eden kind of functioned like a temple. This was a place where God and man dwelled together in perfect harmony. But what happens? Adam and Eve sin against God. And as a result, what, what happens? They're banished. They're kicked out of the garden, kind of kicked out, expelled from the temple, if you will. And now, eventually, God will create a place for his people to meet with him. First a tabernacle in the wilderness and then a temple. And yet, despite all of its grandeur, I want you to envision Solomon's temple in all of its glory. Despite all of that, it was still a reminder that you cannot enter in the holy place where God is. That temple was divided into different courts, a, a holy place and a most holy place. And the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies, would only be accessible by the, the high priest and then only once a year. And he would walk into that holy of holies with a rope around his ankle and bells on his robe so that if he carried with him sin, unconfessed sin, into the most holy place, he would die and they would pull him out by the rope when the bell stopped ringing. So the temple in all of its glory, God is here. And yet it's a reminder that we're not there, are we? We're not in the presence of God. But still, God did show up at the temple. 
He showed his glory at the temple and it was the pride of every single Jew. This is the place, the most important place on the planet. And yet, over time, as we've seen, as we walk through the stories of the prophets, God's people began to desecrate the temple. Their worship began to become distracted. They began to look to other gods, other idols. And so God promised judgment and punishment, discipline. It came in 586 BC. As we've said, the Babylonian army swept in and destroyed the temple. Imagine the horror for God's people. Where is God going to meet with us? Where is God going to show us his glory, his presence? Is God no longer dwelling with us? Well, eventually through the work of Haggai and others, this temple would be rebuilt. But Ezra tells us it was a bittersweet moment. Uh, listen to Ezra chapter three. This is right after Cyrus is made king and they begin to lay the foundation for a new temple and then eventually the work will stop and Haggai begins his ministry. But Ezra chapter three, verse 12. Many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So what's going on? As the foundation for the second temple is being laid, there's this great commotion among God's people. The younger people look at it and they say, this is amazing, the temple is being rebuilt. But the older people have something that the younger people don't have. They have perspective. Some of you guys could have said amen there if you wanted to. They have perspective. And in that perspective, tears begin to flow because they remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. And they say, this is nothing. Now, I want you to understand that as all of this is happening, throughout all of this, there's another prophet named Ezekiel who prophesied that there would be a temple so massive, so glorious, you could fit four or five of Solomon's temples into it. A massive, glorious, beautiful temple that's coming. And all of a sudden, Haggai begins preaching and this janky little temple is getting thrown up. What in the world is going on? There, there must be something better than this. Over 500 years later, a new and better temple appeared. I want you to understand how amazing this is. John chapter one, verse 14, the apostle John begins his gospel and he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That word literally means tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. His glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is telling us, he's giving us a hint, there's a new tabernacle, and we see the glory of the Father in this tabernacle. And if that hint's not enough to you, for you, listen to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus himself says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. You need to understand, brother, sister, friend, to hear Jesus say that would be blasphemous. 
I imagine Jesus with a smile points at himself as he says those words. Whether he did or not, he was talking about himself. He's saying, I am a true and greater temple. But just like Solomon's temple, Jesus would also be destroyed. But unlike Solomon's temple, Jesus would rise from death in greater glory than he had before. So in John chapter two, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple. He's talking about himself. And in three days, I will raise it up. Through his death on the cross, Jesus would make a way for anybody to dwell with God. Listen, brother, sister, this is huge. There is no more most holy place. It's anywhere where the people of God are. That's it. Listen to, to Matthew or Mark chapter 15. As Jesus is dying there on the cross, he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What's happening? Not that the, the evil is going into the holy, but the holy is coming out. Now anyone in Christ can enter into the holy place. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says, we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So we zoomed out. That's the big picture story of the temple. Now you might be asking, what in the world does any of this have to do with me wasting my life? How can we avoid Einstein's predicament? Knowing who we are, but not know where we're going. Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven. He's the new and greater temple. Is there now any place on earth where God dwells with his people? Is there? Yes. But let me give you a hint, brother, sister. It's not a building. At least not a building that you can build with bricks. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You, the church, are being built up as a spiritual house. What is that? A new temple in Christ. We're his body. We're the new temple. And if you need it any clearer, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We usually use that verse to talk about why we shouldn't smoke cigarettes or something like that. But no, notice, if you look really carefully at the original language, Paul is saying, not your body, singular, y'all's body, the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, brother, sister, listen to me. God's mission for you in this life right now is for you to give your life to the building up of his church. So when I ask you today, are you focusing on the mission of God? God's mission for you, brother, sister, friend, today is for you to give your life to the building up of his church wherever she meets. That's the mission of God. So, this doesn't mean, by the way, that everybody needs to quit their jobs and become a pastor or something like that. 
Haggai doesn't tell those that are listening to him, he doesn't tell them to quit their jobs and become prophets like him. He says, no, help build God's house. Brother, sister, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is your mission, help build the people of God. You, you do it by your faithful giving so that we're able to do the things that we do together as a church. You do it through prayer. So you faithfully, faithfully pray for your family here. You, you do it, maybe some of you, by faithfully pursuing the office of elder or deacon to use your gifts to serve God's church. You use it faithfully by, by serving as you're able in your area of ministry. Listen, that is the grand and glorious purpose of your life. And I'm not just saying that because this is my job. God created you to display his glory. He called you and saved you so that you would be a conduit to bring that gospel glorious good news to others by investing your life where God's people meet. That is the mission of your life. Now, you might say, well, that's too hard. I don't know that I can do that. Perhaps God's people thought the same thing because three weeks later on September 21st, Haggai prophesied to them again. We see a second prophecy in chapter one, verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Can I tell you something, church? God's people, focusing on God's mission, always have God's presence. I want you to hear me. I want you to hear me. God's people, focusing on God's mission, always have God's presence. If you will, pour out your life for the building up of his glorious church. Maybe that for you looks like being a Sunday school teacher for second graders. Maybe for you that means being a greeter that faithfully helps people feel welcome when they walk in the doors. If you're faithful to do that, God is with you. Of course, we know that the grand mission of the church is to be a disciple-making place, to be a place that shepherds sinners from lost to leader, we say here. And listen again to Matthew 28, where Jesus gives this great commission. He tells them, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and behold, I am with you always. The same prophecy given to Haggai is given to you, church. He's with you. Are you focused on the mission of God? Now, perhaps it might be helpful ask yourself a question. Am I doing with my life me-sized things or God-sized things? Here's what I mean. Are you living in such a way where you need Jesus to be with you? Or are you living in such a way where you can do it by yourself? I remember years ago in seminary, a preacher standing in front of the chapel and saying the most dangerous thing about ministry is that you can learn to do it. It's true about anything. 
anything in the pursuit of following Jesus, there are things that you can do by yourself just fine. I'm asking you to step beyond that and do the things where you need his presence. Maybe that means beginning a new disciple-making relationship or sharing the gospel with your neighbor or hosting a fellowship group or getting in a fellowship group. Doing the things where you say, that's hard, that's uncomfortable. I need Jesus' help to do that. Jesus says, I'm with you. All right, that's the first question. Are we focused on the mission of God? If not, we may be wasting our lives. There's a second question we need to answer this morning. That is, am I fueled by the glory of God? Am I fueled by the glory of God? Have you ever watched the, the baking show Nailed It on Netflix? Rather than most baking shows, this uh, most baking shows depict amateur bakers that perform at professional levels. Nailed It celebrates imperfection. So wannabe bakers are tasked with ridiculously challenging designer cake recipes, and the results are hilarious. Like the time someone was supposed to make a, a pirate cake. And you can look on the screen to see how they nailed it. Uh, or the emoji cake, which may have been my favorite. Uh, and uh, man, it just looks like, I don't know, I don't even think I could eat that. That looks horrible. I can't help but think about nailed it when I think about the rebuilding of the temple during the days of Haggai. They start, it's October 17th. It's been six weeks since the rebuilding project began. Long enough for God's people to see this is not looking good. Look at chapter two, verse one. In the seventh, day, seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? In other words, who remembers what this place look, used to look like? How do you see it now, he says? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Nailed it. No wonder the older men and women wept when the foundations for the new temple were laid. They remembered what it used to look like. But, but listen to me, brother, sister. Despite the feeble, broken, flawed attempts of God's people, he is going to take that and turn it into something glorious. That's what he always does. And notice chapter two, verse six. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice what he says in verse nine. The latter glory of this temple will be greater than the former. It looks pretty bad now, but God is saying, I promise you, what I'm gonna make of this is gonna look far better than Solomon's temple in all of its glory. Why, how? Because this temple, of course it would, it would be uh, redesigned by Herod, but it would be the temple in which Jesus walked, 
This would be the place where Jesus would, would walk in with a whip and flip over tables and say, you have turned this place, it's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, you've turned it into a den of thieves. Jesus would, would be here when, when he sees the, the Pharisees and the scribes blowing trumpets as they give their gifts. And a little old lady with two coins put it into the treasury. And Jesus says, she gave more than everybody. On this very mountain, just outside the temple walls, the great and fullest and truest and best and final sacrifice would be given as Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, dies on a cross. The great high priest is also the great sacrifice, dying in the place of his people. How is the glory, the latter glory, greater than the former? Because the whole thing was pointing to Jesus all along. But there's, there's something else there. It blows my mind. Look at verse 7. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, some people take that to mean that all the surrounding nations are gonna give their money to help with a temple rebuilding project. I don't think that's what Haggai means because if you notice verse nine, God doesn't need any silver or gold. He says, the silver's mine, the gold is mine, which by the way, we talk about giving sometimes at PBC. It's not because God needs it. He doesn't need it. So what does he mean? What are the treasures of nations that are going to come in to this temple so that this house is filled with glory? What is the greatest treasure of any nation but its people? Image bearers of God. That Jesus, through his blood, draws to himself. And by the way, brother, sister, that includes you. Haggai was prophesying about you this morning in Pocosin, Virginia. You are one of the treasures of the nations that come in to this temple through Christ and Christ shows the glory of God. Listen to me. Every single person in this room, you are created to give your life to something glorious. You are created for glory. A couple of years ago, a commercial enticed its viewers with these words. Don't deny yourself the glory, fame, and power you so richly deserve. Don't settle for less when you can get more. Don't settle for anything less than greatness. Don't settle for anything less than PlayStation. <laughs> now, there's so much in that quote that I agree with. Listen to it again. Don't deny yourself the glory, fame, and power you so richly deserve. Don't settle for less when you can get more. Don't settle for anything less than greatness. But PlayStation? Now, I play PlayStation. In fact, I played PlayStation last night. And it was pretty great, if I say so myself. <laughs> that is not what you are made for, friend. And by the way... The answer's not Xbox either. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, of course it's not PlayStation. Everybody knows. No. You were created, breathed out, and designed by God himself 
for greatness, for glory, a glory that comes as the moon reflects the glory of the sun, as you reflect the greatness and the glory and the majesty of Christ. You give your life so that the nations might come in as treasures into the people of God. Is your life fueled by that, that goal, that glory, so that all might know him? Is there any agony in your heart for the fact that every single day there are countless men and women that die having never heard the name of Jesus? Listen to me. Some of you are quite concerned about the state of our nation. I share many of your concerns. But let me remind you, there are people all over the world dying without Christ. That is what you were made for. That is what you exist for. That is what you were saved for so that others might know Again, that doesn't mean that everybody has to leave here and be a missionary. But it does mean that as God's people, we get serious about God's mission because we're fueled by God's glory and we want them to know him. What about you? What about you? One final question this morning. Is my faith in the promises of God? Is my faith in the promises of God? Two months have passed since Haggai's third prophecy. It's now December 18th, 520 BC. The temple work has been going on now for four months and Haggai delivers two final prophecies. The first one is for the people. It starts in uh, verse 11 of chapter two. Chapter two, verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead person or dead body rather touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with his people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Here's what Haggai's saying. If, you, if you're holding something holy, dedicated to the temple, and you touch something unholy, it doesn't turn the unholy thing holy, right? This is why the Jewish people abstained from lepers. Remember in the New Testament? Because lepers were unholy. They were unclean. And if you're clean, your flesh is fine. You're good to go to the temple. But you touch an unclean leper, guess what? He doesn't become clean. You become what? Unclean. That's what Haggai's saying. He said, here's what he's trying to say to God's people. Just because you're busy helping rebuild this holy house doesn't mean that automatically you become holy. There's a world of difference between busyness for God and blessing from God. Your hard work will never make you clean. That's what Haggai is saying. I, I think, again, this is pointing us ultimately, finally, to Christ himself. Do you remember when Jesus touched lepers? Did Jesus become unclean? 
No, the lepers became clean. Listen, this is reminding God's people then and reminding us now it's not enough to work hard for God if you don't first let him work for you. Ephesians chapter two says, we are saved by grace through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I think the worst thing that could happen this morning would be for someone in this room to think, okay, I've got to get serious about working hard for God. I've got to get serious about doing hard things for God. And you, you pour out your life to doing great things, but you've never met Jesus. That's not going to make you holy, friend. You will not become holy, righteous by working for it. You must first receive his righteousness as a gift by grace alone, through faith alone alone in Christ alone. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, trust this promise. God can make you clean. I told you there are two prophecies that Haggai gave on this day in December. The fifth and final prophecy, the second on that day, comes in verse 21 of chapter two. This one is not for the people as a whole, but for one man, for their leader, Speak to Zerubbabel, verse 21, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And that's the end of the book of Haggai. God ends with this promise for a governor in Judah named Zerubbabel. And I want you to look at the promise. He's saying he's going, there's coming a day when every evil kingdom will be overthrown. By the way, brother, sister, friend, we're still looking for that day. Haggai there is prophesying about something that will come at the second coming of Christ, not at his first coming. He says that God is going to make him his signet ring. In our lingo, that would be like saying you have access to the, the president's e-signature, something like that. A signet ring would be kind of the authority, a signature that gave you authority to act on behalf of the king. And God says to Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you my signet ring. Now, I think when Zerubbabel heard those words, I think he started to break down and weep because decades before, Zerubbabel's grandpa, a man named Conaniah, heard this from God in Jeremiah chapter 22. As I live, declares the Lord, Though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was the signet ring on my right hand, yet I will tear you off. Don't you think Zerubbabel would have heard the story about how his grandpa had once been the signet ring of God himself, used by God to do great things for God, and then, because of his sin, God cast him off. And then he says to Zerubbabel, the grandson of this king, 
I'm going to make you my signet ring. Why? Because there's coming a day when a descendant of Zerubbabel, Jesus Christ himself, would fulfill all the law and the prophets, and he would show us what it means to follow God. He would die in our place. He would rise from the dead. And he will, as we heard last week in Zephaniah, sing over us with joy if we belong to him. Do you believe that kind of promise? I've been meditating all week since Eli's sermon last Sunday about the fact that God sings over us. Thinking about how my wife sings over my children every single night before she puts them in bed. And I started to think, what song does God sing to us? Of course, the Bible doesn't tell us what he sings, but I heard this song this week that maybe got my mind running a little bit. It's a new song by Ellie Holcomb called I Will Carry You. And it goes like this. I know you're tired. I see it in your eyes. All that anxiety that rules your mind. I'll be your shield when you don't feel like you've got strength enough to fight. I'll stand by your side. You are not the sum of your mistakes. You don't have to hide the parts of you that ache. I'd choose you as you are a million times because I'm not ashamed of you. I won't walk away from you. I will carry you through your darkest night when you're terrified. I will carry you when the waters rise, when your hope runs dry. I will carry you. Brother, sister, we don't know the song that God sings over his children with joy, but I can promise you this. It's even better than that. It's better than you can imagine. I believe, I firmly believe that one of the reasons why so many of us, so many of us hesitate when it comes to living our lives sold out for the mission of God, for the glory of God, is because we, we wonder, is he really that good? Is he really that good? William Carey once said, if we expect great things of God, then we will attempt great things for God. Could it be, dear brother, sister, friend, the reason why we're wasting our lives is because we still think that there's something out there better than him. Is your faith in the promises of God? If not, you might be wasting your life. Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards did waste their lives if this life is all that there is. If this life is it, then collect all the seashells you want Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. But if the gospel is true, then an unwasting life is a life that's focused on the mission of God, fueled by the glory of God, with faith in the promise of God. I still remember when I first heard John Piper's sermon about six years ago, or six years after he first preached it, back in 2006. Holly and I were newlyweds. And I remember sitting in my cubicle where I worked at the time, and I remember giving my life to God as a blank check. 
It's yours. Some of you don't know what a blank check is. That's okay. Basically, you're giving, think of it as giving someone the password and account numbers for your bank account or your credit card. Giving them the credit card and saying, here you go. You're not telling them how much to spend or where to spend it. Here you go. It's yours. Use it how you want, where you want. That's what I said to God back in 2006, and the rest is history. What about you? What about you? What would it look like for you to give your life to God in that way today? For some of you, that might be shaping up. Maybe it means becoming a Christian. Maybe it means not wasting your retirement, using it for the mission somehow, some way. Maybe it means not wasting your singleness and using it for the spread of the gospel. Maybe it means not wasting your parenting and pouring into your kids so they hear the good news of Christ. Maybe for you, it's not about shaping up, it's about leaning in. Maybe there's somebody in this room that God has put on your heart to, to serve as a shepherd. And, and maybe you need to get started on pursuing eldership at a church like Pocosin Baptist Church. Maybe it's deacon ministry. It's using your gifts to serve the body. Maybe it means greater involvement. Maybe it means joining the church. Maybe it means Sunday school or fellowship groups, but it's leaning in. Maybe it's going out. Maybe it means God sending some of you away from here. People that we love, people that are our friends, people that we care about, but God intends to send you out as a, as a missionary, as a church planter, as a church revitalizer, so that the gospel spreads and doesn't just get hoarded here. Whatever it is that God's calling you to do, I'm gonna ask you before you leave here today to give God not a gift card version of yourself that says here's how much you can have and here's where you can spend it, but to give him a blank check, to give it all to him, whatever he wants, wherever he wants it, however much he wants. When I conclude and we close the service, there'll be folks with the white flag happy to pray with you, happy to meet and talk with you outside if you'd like. If you want information about some of these next steps, you can have head to the blue flag. But whatever you do, dear brother, sister, friend, don't waste your life. Would you pray with me?